Hello, welcome to New Wave Coffee, a podcast by Bellwether Coffee. Here at Bellwether, we believe you can create a better industry, one that is more inclusive and sustainable. And we think that you can have a cafe that's more profitable as well. In this six episode series, we're gonna take you on an audio journey to show you how you can think outside the box around topics like... The real situation for coffee farmers, the challenges they face, what they're doing about it, and what cafe owners can do about it too. We're also gonna talk about the role of technology and the future of coffee. And we're gonna talk about how to make your cafe business model more resilient against all the surprises the world is going to throw at you. I'm Liz Pashad. I'm the product marketing manager here at Bellwether. I started my career as a barista, like most people, and then I became a roaster. I owned my own cafe. I was a green coffee importer, and then I finally joined Bellwether to help increase equity for coffee farmers and also help business owners here in the States realize their vision for their cafes. I'm Arno Holshue. I'm the chief coffee officer here at Bellwether. I all started out as a barista some 20 years ago, and I've stuck with the industry because I love the people in the industry. I love the product, I love the way it tastes, I love caffeine, and also because I've seen this industry be a force for good in people's lives, and I wanna increase the ability of coffee to do good. Today we're gonna explore a really simple question. Well, it seems simple anyway. What should your coffee taste like, right? What flavors are you gonna serve to your customers? Now, if you're part of the specialty coffee community, the answer seems really simple. You wanna serve them a high quality coffee. But we're gonna see that actually there's a problem with that approach and we're turning people away who might otherwise wanna buy from us and be part of our community. Hmm. We're gonna go right back to the 80s to explore a little bit of culinary history with one of our friends and to look at how we got to the problem that we're facing today. Yeah, the 80s were a source of a lot of problems we're facing today, let's be real. (laughs) And then we're gonna speak to a cafe that is showing a new way, actually a quite innovative way of approaching coffee flavors. And I actually think that that could be a template for the industry going forward. So Liz, let me start us off right now by introducing you to somebody that I think you already know, Katie Rose Dawson. Oh, cool. Hey, my name's Katie Rose. I'm the Senior Director of Customer Experience at Bellwether Coffee. This is my, you know, first time working in coffee. Now, Katie is from a family that loves coffee, and they like a very specific kind of coffee. My dad particularly loves very, very, very dark roasts. I really only want, I'm only interested in drinking coffee that like can make my face feel like it's melting off because (laughs) that's the coffee that I sort of grew up on. Now Katie, who loves face melters, is gonna tell us a little story and this is where things get interesting. I got an espresso machine from my dad. He was like clearing out his coffee stuff and I didn't know what beans to use. And so I was like, okay, great. I'll go buy some espresso beans. And so I went to my local coffee shop, which is like a local roaster. And Liz, this is like your classic specialty coffee shop. Like I think the retail bags sit on like refurbished wood. And this coffee shop was offering what most specialty coffee shops today would offer, which is, you know, rather lightly roasted, pretty high acid coffees. And I was like, I need some espresso beans. (laughs) And they were like, we don't sell espresso beans. Like espresso is a grind. It's not a roast. And I was, (laughs) I actually just was like, didn't know what to say. Cause I was like, I don't know if that's true. Shoot. I thought I knew something about coffee, but I clearly don't know anything about coffee. And I just walked out of there and was like, okay, I'll just try this. So you went to this coffee shop. You got a really vexing answer. You brought that coffee home and you made it in your espresso machine. What did it taste like? 
it tasted sour. It was like a little acidic. I think I just took one sip and was like, pass. Like, where do I get darker coffee? Because I actually just didn't learn anything from my experience. And Liz, you know, just to be clear about like what's going on here, Katie went in there looking for a dark roasted coffee. That's what espresso meant to her. You know, and so she was looking for a coffee that had flavors of chocolate, maybe some like pipe tobacco, maybe some nutty flavors, you know. And, and I think that barista probably knew that when she asked that question. But what she was offered was a very light roast and acidic coffee that she probably didn't want to make in her espresso machine at home. Let me be really clear. This is a bad financial decision for the cafe. Have you been back to that shop? Do you still go there? I haven't, actually. See, Liz, the cafe lost her as a customer there. I just want to see what else is out there. And it also makes me want to go to other coffee shops and ask the same question and see what I get. And maybe I'll find the right space for me if I find the right answer. Because I'm still on the hunt for the right beans. I put the espresso machine away, right? It's like, it's like no longer on the counter. Oh my gosh, that's so tragic. <laughs> okay, Liz, here's the thing. As an industry, especially coffee is just missing out on a lot of people. A lot of people are like Katie Rose Dawson, and the data speaks for itself. Yeah, you know, I attended Roast Magazine's 2020 Roast Summit, and uh, a woman named Catherine Hartline of uh, Atlas Coffee Importers gave a really interesting presentation. The biggest bombshell for me was that she said in a 2016 study, this peer-reviewed study gave Dunkin' Donuts coffee um, and a super high-end 96-point micro lot to a group of random people. And guess what? Regular coffee consumers in this group liked those coffees equally as much. The regular old Dunkin's coffee and the quote unquote best coffee that the specialty industry had to offer. And you know, take Erica Voni's presentation at the Specialty Coffee Association's 2019 lecture series. So she gave a lecture where she revealed that Trade, so Trade is one of the coffee industry's largest subscription services, 77% of their customers preferred medium or dark roasts. Only 23% actually liked light roasts best. Hmm, that's interesting. And these trends are also borne out in the 2021 National Coffee Data Trends Specialty Coffee Report. Okay, it's almost the same story. So Arno, how many millions of customers is the specialty coffee industry missing out on by not talking to these people? I think it could be tens of millions, hmm. perhaps billions. <laughs> I mean, how did this happen? That a specialty coffee shop thought then that it was the right idea to offer Katie Rose a light roasted coffee when she asked for espresso? So it is a good question. How did we come to be this way? And so listen, what we're gonna do is we're gonna speak to an industry veteran who is going to turn back the hands of time for us. <laughs> that is our good friend, Peter Giuliano, the man, the myth, the legend. My name is uh, Peter Giuliano. I'm the Chief Research Officer for the Specialty Coffee Association and the Executive Director of the Coffee Science Foundation. Now, Peter is going to show us that good coffee actually used to mean dark coffee. That was what quality was. Uh, you know, we've shifted over the years from that idea of like a really dark roasted blend as the, the pinnacle of quality. We've shifted from that idea to, you know, that like light roasts mean quality and that dark roasts no longer mean quality. Why did that shift happen? You know, we're going to pick up that piece of the story by going back to Peter's earlier years. So I started my journey in coffee in 1988 when I started as a barista. I was in college and I used to hang out in this coffee shop 
And one day, somebody hadn't showed up for a shift, and the assistant manager threw me an apron and said, hey, can you work a shift? So I skipped class and worked a shift, and I never stopped working in coffee ever since then. Peter went on to co-found and co-own Counterculture, which is one of the leading coffee roasters in the United States. During the time I was at Counterculture, I was really focused on being a coffee buyer and a coffee roaster and a coffee taster. And I'm one of those people who has seen multiple different phases of coffee flavor. I, I, I love to reminisce about the late 80s and early 90s in specialty coffee. Yes, take us back there. What was the typical flavor profile of an espresso at that time? My thing that I used to do, and I was very proud of this, I was 17 years old, and my mom, she always had a bowl of like Hershey's Kisses, you know? And I used to grab a few of those, put them in my pocket, and then go to the coffee house. I'd order a double espresso, and I'd unwrap my Hershey Kiss and drop it, plunk, in the in the espresso. <laughs> Stir it around. <laughs> and I felt very sophisticated. <laughs> but yeah, so espresso at that time, the flavor profile was about being dark. Dark coffee was seen as very sophisticated. The coffee blend we had was called Continental Blend. So it was seen as very European. It was oily, dark. All of our coffee was very dark, and it was gloriously so. I remember the flavors later on, once I had started working in this coffee shop, I remember a coworker. she brought me a cup, and she said, taste this, you know, and I did. And I remember it tasting like, exactly like chocolate-covered cherries. And it was so good. And I said, what is this? And she said, it's Estate Java, you know. And now I know that it was from the Jampit Estate in East Java. Yeah. And that flavor profile was so memorable. I remember it as if it was yesterday. Okay, but these beautiful flavors that Peter is reminiscing about as he sits on his front porch, uh, his virtual front porch, they are dark, okay? Let's be sure. clear. And uh, he makes reference to a single origin there, but 99% of what they're talking about is blends. This is like the kryptonite to the Superman of today's third wave barista. How would you like an extremely dark blend? Perhaps one that's based on Indonesia. Mmm. And we'll put a Hershey's Kiss in the bottom of your espresso. <laughs> yeah, I love this perspective from Peter because he's totally right in that I remember as an early coffee drinker in my teens, absolutely that that was the culture of, especially the Seattle Coffee House, which is where I was sort of raised that dark coffee was the flavor. And it was because it tasted like coffee and coffee that tasted like coffee actually was a revelation at the time. We That's were coming right. out of instant coffee, which right. I also remember from my childhood. I remember making a cup of coffee for my mom every morning that was melted Folgers crystals in a mug that I microwaved for her. And that was her morning cup. Oh, sorry, half was decaf. <laughs> and, uh, and then, yeah, coffee that tasted like coffee that came with a little stick of chocolate on the side, especially here in Seattle. We had Seattle's Best Coffee, which, rest in peace, um, used to give you like this little artisan bar of chocolate with your coffee. And I just remember thinking as a young coffee drinker how erudite that was. <laughs> yeah, totally. I My first job roasting coffee was in the 90s. I roasted coffee on some homebrew civets roaster in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, we just roasted it to 11 on, on most of the coffees <laughs> that we served. We had some light roasted coffees there, but they were like novelty. And the thing about it was we were celebrated for being high quality. 
And I'll go even further and say something that will further mark me as like a dinosaur and an old man and everything. I still kind of like this coffee sometimes. I love dark roasted Mexican coffee specifically. It's very good. Peter's going to give us, I think, a really compelling theory about how that transformation from quality means dark, quality means blends, to quality means super, super light roasted coffee, how that occurred. Can't wait. So one thing I think people sometimes forget when they're talking about the history of coffee is how connected it is to other culinary trends. So in the 70s and 80s, which was the rise of the what's now called the specialty coffee revolution, the culinary influencers at that time were people like Jacques Pepin, who was a French cook who was on TV a lot, Julia Child. And the point that I'm making is cuisine was seen as very European and very ingredient-centric, especially French, right? So French technique was seen as the height of culinary achievement and therefore lots of cooking technique, lots of sauces, complex things. And coffee was right there along with that. So ingredients and technique and most of all Europeanness was really the center. But then as things changed as we got into the late 90s and 2000s, the culinary trends began to be about Alice Waters and, you know, Chez Panisse, which was a very California approach, a very fresh ingredient, right? The other European cuisine that became popular was Italian cuisine, which is much simpler than French cuisine and much more ingredient focused. And you started to hear people say they wanted to taste the ingredient, not the cooking. And so coffee started to take on that identity as well. You started to hear coffee roasters say, well, I roast so you can taste the ingredient rather than taste the work of the roaster. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think was really important was the local food thing that was also very connected with Alice Waters and Chez Panisse and Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma. And people started to get really focused on the agricultural part of food. And so... In coffee, the way that manifested was people getting a lot more interested in the origin of their coffee. And instead of, you know, I, I just told you our espresso blend at the time I started was continental blend, right? Making reference to continental Europe. We had no idea what was in it. And it didn't really matter. It was about a flavor profile from Europe. But then once people started to get interested in local agriculture, knowing where their tomatoes were grown or going to the farmer's market on the weekend, they wanted to apply that same logic to coffee. And so it became about the flavor profile of this cool Nicaraguan coffee from Segovia. And so that became about getting the coffee roast a lot lighter so you could recognize the regional nuances in coffee and the differences. So Liz, it's time for a classic specialty coffee quiz. Why is it that light roasts help us better taste the nuances in coffee? Um, because the less you roast a coffee, the more of the flavor compounds remain intact, particularly those that carry acidity. Right, right. So you can sort of recognize where the coffee is from because you can taste the acids that tell you that it came from a place, right? Sure, and sometimes the sweetness, and sometimes there are more subtle spice or floral notes that can be obscured by darker roasts. Absolutely. It, because I said earlier that I like dark roasts, I now need to say I also really enjoy light roasts. Do you need to say it? I do need to say <laughs> it. I need to say I don't want to be ridden out of town on a rail, you know, like You need to put a quarter in the light roast jar. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, okay. So, you know, so Liz, like, we, I think we both kind of witnessed this, right? Like, you have this, this new approach to coffee, which what's cool about it is that you can taste more of what's in the coffee. You can, you can taste the characteristics of the coffee. But the interesting thing was that that then became codified as quality in the entire industry, right? So how did you see that happening? You know, the industry started talking about um, markers of flavor uh, distinction as synonymous with quality and cup scoring. Cup scoring is very important to us as an industry now. Cupping, by the way, is a specialty coffee industry's way of deciding on the quality of coffee. It's this really ritualized tasting process, and uh, then the results are in a point system. Um, because it tells us how much we pay a farmer sometimes. It tells us how much we charge our customers. It tells us where we are as a company. It gives us our identity as coffee roasters when we talk about point score in a coffee. So what makes up those points? You have to, you have to score a coffee objectively. And what do you score it on? Flavor that is distinct and recognizable. You score it on its acidity profile. Right. Um, you score it on its body and on um, the cleanness in the cup, which is also synonymous with lighter roast. So Liz, absolutely. You know, cupping and scoring became the foundation of what it meant to be a quality specialty coffee because coffees that are lighter roasted tend to do better because the lighter roast accentuates the distinctiveness of coffee, right? And the idea that a single origin that's roasted light, it was the perfect expression of the ingredient. But we're no longer trying to figure out what is yummy to our customers. We're trying to figure out what scores well. And then Liz, we took it even further. Something that happened there was that we started talking about the value that the farmer produced. And people started saying, you know, 80% of the quality of the coffee comes from the farm, right? As a way of sort of talking about how much we love farmers and as a way of expressing our fidelity and loyalty to them, right? And so as a result, it was seen as somehow injuring the farmer to roast the coffee dark, right? But I wanna say that like ha having met a couple coffee farmers, I don't know that they care so much. Have you seen how coffee farmers roast coffee? Often it's not with a professional grade machine, it's usually with tools over an open flame to get a sense of the characteristics of the coffee before they sell it, but it's not what we would consider quality controlled or professionally roasted. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that really, that it was a bit of a misplaced thing where rather than figure out a way to pay them sustainably, we convinced ourselves that we were sheltering their feelings and their dignity by roasting light. Yeah, totally. Okay. so. So, you know, what we see here is that, as Peter says, there was this cultural movement towards ingredient-driven cuisine, and so that bleeds over into coffee. And then that new way of thinking about coffee as an ingredient is totally institutionalized in the way that we assess quality through the cupping form, okay? And then the next thing that happens is once it's there, it's actually moralized and turned into a sort of moral codex to roast light instead of dark. Well, and at that point, if that's what you believe, you almost have a mandate that's to right. communicate to the consumer what they might be missing right. in coffee. That's right, because it's no longer a matter of taste. It's a, There is actually a better way, we think. Yeah, you use the word moral, which I think is correct in this instance. Right. So what we have here is we have an industry that has completely convinced itself that there is a right way to do things, and that way involves more acidic coffees that are roasted lighter, okay? But we have a consumer base that really hasn't come along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, just like Katie and her dad, you know, they love dark roasted coffee. It sounds like the industry norm is not for them. 
So the conflict is totally pre-programmed, right? And Peter's gonna tell us a little bit about how that plays out. At that cafe, why, why is there that disconnect with the customers? So here's where it gets interesting to me. For years, SCA has been doing consumer research and other kinds of research to sort of dig into this question a little bit. And before me, a person called Tracy Ging, who is uh, herself a great coffee thinker, started a set of consumer research back in 2015. And we started doing focus groups and stuff around what consumers liked about coffee. And her insight was that there were these two groups that were easy to identify. And she called them the specialty coffee adopters and the super specialty people. And the specialty coffee adopters are what most people are. They've come into the specialty world usually through Starbucks often and oftentimes a sweet kind of milky drink. I remember these people as a barista. These are people that would come in and they just want something nice. They've been taking care of their kids that morning or they're on their way to work, kind of frazzled. They're not quite sure if they're going to be having a good day or a bad day yet. And they just want you to give them something that's delicious and comforting and warm and pleasing to them. So that's the adopter mentality. In the research, though, they could also see a smaller group that we call the super specialty people. Now, these are people who are into the idea of thinking about their coffee experience, right? So I, I call the adopters coffee lovers and the supers coffee thinkers, right? And these are people that want to learn about coffee. They want to get informed. They want to have a more intellectual experience maybe. Now, you can be an adopter and a super at different times during the day. Your first cup, you just want it to be nice. And you don't want to think about it much. You just want it to be there and good and delicious, and that's it. Maybe later in the day, you might get interested in an origin or a story or a processing technique or an exotic contraption that makes it. And we saw this clearly. And as we've done more sensory consumer research, we also see a division in what people just like in terms of their the flavors that they like, you know? The adopter, they make up a majority of who the specialty coffee consumer is. That's most of our customers are in that adopter mindset. 75%, 25% split, you know. Now that smaller percentage are the supers. They're more engaged, they're interested in being educated, and they're willing to pay more. This checks out to me. He speaks my mind, right? Also, I, I'm really, I feel very seen kind of like a lifelong coffee professional who is sometimes an adopter. Specifically when it's cold outside, I love a dark roasted cup of coffee. That's my afternoon coffee. That's my like, oh. I want a dessert treat thing. Like I want to have something that's a little sweet. I want it to be dark because I'm going to put some soy milk or some oat milk in it and I want it to be creamy. It's a different type of cup and I love it. Yeah. I love all my cups equally. I love all my cups equally, but here's the question. Why are we doing this? <laughs> like, like, why are we offering consumers coffees that we strongly suspect they are not going to enjoy, right? Why are we treating them like supers when we know they're actually adopters? Most of us that work in the industry are supers. And, you know, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. And we become sort of evangelists in the both the best and the worst senses of that word. 
And sometimes uh, a preacher can have a generous heart and sometimes a preacher can have a punishing heart. And I think we can embody both of those things. And I think we have to be careful about that. Basically, we, we, those of us who are inside the industry, we kind of get into this industry generally for love of the drink, right? For love of coffee. And so we explore and we learn and we want to tell everybody about what we've learned and we evangelize and we shouldn't be. So, you know, just to put it really simply, we're offering light roasted coffees to people who don't want light roasted coffee. They prefer darker coffees. And we do it for all these various reasons. But at the end of the day, you know, like with Katie, there's a disconnect. They don't like it, you know. So what does that mean? Where does that leave us? Well, Peter had a thought on that. Here's the thing is customers are diverse. You know, when I was, you know, in my true believer stage of specialty coffee, I believed that there was a flavor profile that you could get to that everyone would love because we're built DNA, something, we're humans, we're built to like things and everybody would just rally around this one flavor of ideal coffee. And when you do consumer research, you realize that that's just not so. People are just so diverse and beautifully so because of course we're diverse. We all have different favorite foods. Some people like mushrooms, some people don't. It's just the way humans are. So the idea that we could put people into a literal box of ideal coffee flavor was folly to begin with. At the end of the day, it's about listening to people's voices and honoring what their desires are. I think that's the lesson. So, but Liz, Peter has some other advice too, because, you know, if you love light roasted coffee, but your customers aren't coming along for the ride, like, how do you thread that needle? And Peter had some advice there. I, I was just saying that you should listen to consumers, but you should also listen to yourself and your own heart, because what also doesn't work is like doing, you know, focus groups and designing your flavors to meet the group, you know. I have a friend who's a restaurateur. He has this really good philosophy about, Serving people being a negotiation. You're asking them for a little bit of leeway to try the thing that you're passionate about, and then you give them a little bit too, and it's like a dance. And I think that's the way people need to be in, when they're opening up a coffee shop, is they start with something that they love, and then listen to people and see if they love it too. And then it's just like a personal relationship. You give them a little bit, you ask them for a little bit, and it grows into something great. Oh, how delightful. <laughs> I mean, he's right. You know, my, my history goes to restaurants, right? Like I think about places that I love that are doing incredible work with ingredients, but at the same time, we have this layer of hospitality, which is what it's the vehicle that brings you along not as the subject of a series of events that are about to happen to you, but as a guest, you know, as a participant and the honored visitor in our like fun thing we get to do. That's right. Um, we want to delight you. We want to surprise you. And we also want to expose you to something that you maybe hadn't thought of. That's right. That's right. I th it's remembering that making coffee is an act of communication. It, it's not an academic pursuit. It's an active back and forth with a real person on the other side. Yeah, it's a dialogue. It's not a thesis, you know? We're not lecturing. Okay, so let's quickly recap. We started with Katie Rose Dawson going out for a coffee. She did not enjoy her experience because she wanted a coffee that was good for a traditional espresso, which is, let's say, a dark roasted coffee. And she was given one that the coffee shop legitimately thought was a high quality coffee, but in their version of quality, that was a really light coffee. And Katie, she doesn't like light roasts. 
So we spoke to Peter and we found out, you know, why this disconnect exists. And we explored how specialty coffee used to be actually very dark. Specialty and quality meant dark. And these days it's much lighter. And we found a whole bunch of reasons for that, you know, to honor the farmer, to show terroir, to focus on flavors and coffee as an ingredient, and a little bit of moral superiority thrown in for good measure. But ultimately, Peter's advice is that making coffee needs to be a dance with your customer. You need to know what you like. That's probably why you're in coffee in the first place. And you also need to understand where your customers are and what they're looking for. And together, if you do the dance right, that's where you can actually build community. And that's where I want to take the story next. I want to take you to one of our customers here at Bellwether who have done that dance with the customers and have built that community. I want to take you to Sip and Sonder. Great. I am Shanita Nicholas, one of the co-founders of Sip and Sonder. And I'm Amanda Jane Thomas, the other co-founder of Sip and Sonder here in Englewood, California. Sip and Sonder is a coffee house um, in Inglewood, California. We have both our cafe uh, with delicious coffee and treats. Uh, we roast coffee inside and also act as an entrepreneurial hub and an event space. Cool. And they're not even telling you all the cool stuff. They were on Ellen. I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't. Um, they were on the cover of Barista Magazine recently. So they're doing something right. They're doing something really, really right. They're enjoying incredible success and are... Um, just being greeted by the industry is something that we've been missing. So to, to understand how they approach flavors and how they approach sort of negotiating flavors with their customers, it helps to know a little bit about their origin story. Because for a long time, they didn't feel like coffee shops were for them. They just like did not feel welcome in coffee. I grew up in New York City, so at the time, you know, Starbucks was in that process of popping up everywhere. But, you know, I've been to Starbucks a couple of times, but not to the level of some of my, you know, friends. And I would get like a passion tea or I had specific drinks that I would get. But I didn't know. I mean, I, I didn't know all of the different types of coffee drinks. And it it was a it was a, a almost I it seems weird saying, but I had shame around it. Like, OK, I'm not I'm not hip on coffee. I'm not, I'm not hip on like, okay, this, this culture, this lifestyle. I became fascinated with spaces like coffee shops. And, you know, I wanted a space that I could also just like go to and sit in and have a warm cup of coffee and kind of be lost in my own thoughts. Like in New York City, like winter, looking out the window, you know, I'd pass by coffee shops and people would be snuggled up, you know, sipping a latte or, and it was this whole experience that I felt it was a, it was like part shame, but then part also longing. Like I want that. So I want to, I want to one, like, learn all the things. And I also want that kind of space that I can be in. And so that really was such a a huge bedrock of of what Sip and Sonder is. Uh, Being a place where anyone at any time, whether alone or with other people, can really come and and have a place to just be. Yeah. So Liz, what they did is, you know, they were both lawyers and they basically packed up their bags and they moved to the historically black neighborhood of Inglewood in California, and they set up a cafe there called Sip and Sonder. And those early experiences that they spoke about, about how they didn't feel like coffee was for them or that they were allowed, that's what they tried to address when they created Sip and Sonder. You know, and there's so many other folks that share our exact experiences. So because we know that, it's like, well, what kind of coffee culture are we creating and where it is accessible, where there is that coffee education? We're encouraging questions. We're encouraging, you know, not necessarily knowing and having discourse around it. And they're not being like a shame that's around it. So really that that idea of accessibility. Yeah. 
And I am so incredibly, you know, privileged. I feel privileged to be in the community that we're in. And we know most of our customers, they know us. There's uh, an anecdotal story of a family that's been coming in for a while. And we heard that the young daughter Mm. at home, you know, she she plays pretend and she's the owner of a coffee house. And how amazing is that? You know, that level of representation. Yeah, we're we're criers when they told us that story. The flood works. Yeah, so it sounds like they've built a really special community around their coffee shop. Yeah, they have. And it's actually tied to flavor because um, what they could have done, which is what a a lot of coffee shops do, um, is they could have aimed for that classic especially coffee flavor. Super light roasted, really acidic. You're not allowed to put milk in it. That is a very specific flavor profile that may not be inviting to everyone, maybe not to people who are first adopting specialty coffee, right, which is their plan. They want to open the door to specialty coffee. And they, you know, they brought in a community of specialty coffee adopters by talking to them in a very specific and, and intentional way about flavor. You know, when we created our, our menu, we went in with both things in mind. You know, first, what is a traditional global way of, of approaching coffee? Because it was important to us understanding and presenting kind of technically the technical aspects of coffee uh, while simultaneously appreciating fully that we are entering into a space that may not have that connection to coffee. And so, you know, really being purposeful about the balance between the two. We're not dumbing anything down in our shop. We're presenting it in a way that's open and accessible through, you know, sometimes a customer will ask as an example for a caramel macchiato. And that's a very specific drink in, in certain shops. <laughs> and so we are aware of that. Uh, and, and so we take the time when we go through the history of what a macchiato traditionally is and how that's going to be presented, what we know other places created as. And we work together with that customer on crafting something that they're going to enjoy while they, you know, simultaneously educating on, you know, the traditional aspects of coffee creation. And so it really is this like blend of coffee education, of exploration, um, and acknowledgement of meeting people wherever they are. Yeah. And, you know, we'll have some customers that, you know, come in and they're like, first of all, you know, what are you guys like? What, what's what's going on here? And we'll, you know, say, OK, this is a coffee house. And they're like, OK, so what do you what do you have? What do you recommend? And we talk them through. We're like, so what what kind of, you know, flavors do you like? What do you gravitate towards at home? What are you drinking? And they're like, I mean, you know, I have some Starbucks coffee at home. And then we're like, okay, so is it, you know, what kind of roasts? We take the time and it's something that we are very purposeful about with our team to take the time with each customer to, to actually hear them and get to the bottom of kind of what is their current experience with coffee flavors, profiles, and then what that looks like and, t- and translates into in terms of what they can get at Sip and Sonder. Yeah. I, I love when someone walks in and they're like hesitant. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's start. Game time. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> I have a lot of fun with it. You know, this is such a refreshing way to have this conversation with a customer. You know, with Katie, she went into a shop and found that she was basically pushed to buy a light roasted coffee that wasn't the coffee that she wanted. So at Sip and Sonder, it's a completely different conversation. You know, the cafe is meeting customers where they are, you know, saying, I hear that you're asking for a caramel macchiato and here's how we can marry your tastes with the specialty coffee that we're offering here in our shop. You know, it's not preachy, it's not didactic, it's not prescriptive. It's saying, how can we 
marry the two cool things that we both like and have you come back for that again. So Arno, tell me, what kind of coffees then do they actually offer their customers? What does the outcome of this process look like? Yeah, so so as I asked them that, compared to a traditional coffee shop, which is going to have a very limited menu, and by that I mean some kind of brewed coffee, probably batch brewed, maybe pour over, and you'd have espresso, macchiato, cappuccino, latte, and maybe a mocha. And I asked him, what are you offering instead? Yeah, no, we have some some favorites right now. Um, the latest one is our Onyx. So that's a charcoal vanilla latte. And we kind of worked on that profile with our team. And then what we call the Cardi Rose. <laughs> and say, an, an ode to a, a, a perhaps popular hip hop artist. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, a, a cardamom rose latte um, that we kind of crafted again with our team of baristas. And just going off of like, what's the season? How are people feeling? How can we really, you know, touch on the different senses yeah. and, and the sentiments that people are having? You know, we, we see coffee. Coffee is from across the diaspora. And there's so many flavors that those same places that coffee is from also provide. There's spices, just flavors that, that maybe you don't even think of as anything to do with coffee. A lot of folks, you know, be like, okay, cardamom, like we've heard of that. Is that in this, you know, this kind of cuisine? Like, oh, with coffee, like, what is that like? Like, what was the thought there? So Arno, how does all of this resonate with their customers? Did they tell you what happened to the customer who came in asking for a caramel macchiato? Yeah, they uh, they left in a huff. No, I'm kidding. It's a very different story. Yeah, so I suggested a caramel latte with a pump of vanilla to kind of give that similar experience that they were looking for and also the the kind of depth of a drink within the latte itself. And they loved it and yeah. have been coming back and we have a new customer. So Liz, in some, what, what is the advice that you would give to somebody who's uh, grappling with these questions of flavor in their coffee shop? I mean, I think Peter is right that you start with what you love and communicate that to your customers and listen to how it goes. I mean, that's kind of a clunky way of saying that, but I think that that really is the heart of it, which is like you start with your vision and you open a dialogue with your customers. Start with a point of view, dialogue, respect, and uh, above all, if Katie Rose comes into your coffee shop, make sure that you make Katie Rose happy. She's looking for dark coffee. She wants dark coffee when she's asking about espresso. <laughs> Let's put Katie Rose's espresso machine back on the counter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast was produced by James Harper of Filter Productions, music by Eli Nelson. And in case you didn't know, Bellwether Coffee makes the world's first zero emissions commercial coffee roaster that lets cafes roast for themselves. We've put links to all the interviewees' social media in the show notes and links to articles we've written at Bellwether if you want to go deeper on anything we talked about today. Wherever you are in the industry, or if you're just now thinking about joining the specialty coffee industry, we would love to hear your thoughts. You can uh, drop us a line at connect at bellwethercoffee.com or visit us online at bellwethercoffee.com. And if you like the show, share it with your friends who also love coffee and drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. So in our next episode, we're going to be asking the question, why is it that the specialty coffee community has such a tortured relationship with adopting new technologies? So pressing a button and making a drink 
is still stigmatized in what we do. But until then, take care and we'll see you next time.